finals are upon us. This is the Bearded Car Cast. I am Mike Pacheco. He is Dave Freeman. Normally, we talk college basketball, but, you know, of course, throughout the rest of the year when college basketball is not going on, we like to talk about things that interest us. And, of course, the NBA Finals feature my team, the Boston Celtics, and Dave's team, the Golden State Warriors. And, for, of course, this is the first time they've met in the finals since we've known each other. So this is it's going to be fun for us, Dave, to, to watch and, and uh, kind of go through this together. Yes, all of us Warrior fans are hoping to avenge that 1964 finals, <laughs> right. finals performance. I, I believe Wilt Chamberlain was the MVP. Uh, that was during the playoffs. And then in, in the finals itself, it was a pretty decisive, from what I can gather, uh, Celtics victory in, in five games. Though the games were close, that's been kind of a problem with the NBA playoffs this year. If you're a Warrior fan, if you're a Celtic fan, they've been great, but the playoffs in general have not featured a ton of really tight down-to-the-wire games. Well, the Celtics series have um, have fit that bill. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is the Celtics team was a team maybe back in December people were, were leaving for dead. And then um, they kind of hit their stride in January, they started to mesh. You know, of course, they have a, a new first-year coach trying to, you know, Al Horford, you know, back into the mix, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown kind of emerging. Um, not emerging because they've already been here, but, you know, getting better. And and this team down the stretch, you know, they had um, a bunch of elimination games. It looks like they, you know, kind of blew one on game six against the Heat, and then they go down and, and win a, a tight game. The other thing that's kind of interesting, I think, about the Celtics team and this is maybe getting a little bit too into the nitty-gritty, but it's like they're a three-quarter team. I mean, they play pre usually pretty good in the first and second quarter, and they're a pretty good fourth-quarter finishing team. During the playoffs, some of the third quarters were kind of dismal, but, you know, it, it doesn't take away from what a great series it was. and um, or what it, I think it's going to be a terrific – hopefully it's a terrific series. Uh, you know, we've seen all sorts of different prognostications from, you know, I think some people uh, – most people think it's going to go seven. Some people have kind of picked one team and the other in six. But uh, you, I don't think you can argue that it's not maybe the two – I mean, I think right now it's two of the best teams playing the best right now. Maybe not, you, you could argue throughout different times of the year maybe one or the other wasn't the best team. But they're, the, I think these two teams are two best defensive teams, and they're, they're playing their best basketball right now. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the third quarter because that's the quarter the Warriors have been spectacular. They, they've blown people out in the third quarter, and sometimes that's made the fourth quarter not – not particularly interesting or, or doesn't really matter. It'll be interesting to see if, if that continues. Yeah, I mean, the NBA regular season is too long. I, I don't think anyone yeah. would debate that. So what happened in November or, or what happened in January, that's a lifetime ago. Phoenix was the best team in the NBA in the regular season. They were not in the postseason. No. And what happened six, seven, eight, nine months ago – is mostly irrelevant to what's going on now. The Warriors may have been the best team in the league the first month of the year. I, I don't even remember that far back. Clay Thompson wasn't playing. Gary Payton was a guy that was, you know, the 11th guy on the team. He should be back from the uh, the broken um, elbow and is a, a defensive stalwart for Golden State. I love that these are two teams in an era of NBA basketball where stars leave to play with their friends, that they're home-built. I, I mean, Jalen Brown and 
uh, Jason Tatum are, are guys that came up with the Celtics. Yep. And for the Warriors, everyone knows that Clay and Dre and Steph have been Warriors for a long, long time. Steph Curry is the longest tenured player for a single team in the NBA. And it's... It's fascinating, though, how both teams have augmented their roster with guys around them. You mentioned Al Horford. No one thinks that Al Horford is the guy that wins you a championship. He's not your your go-to guy. He's not your number one guy. But he fits beautifully. Mm -hmm. And Marcus Smart fits. I thought the trade deadline move to get Derek White was Mm -hmm. incredibly impactful for the Celtics. And when you look at what the Warriors have done, and a lot has been written about this recently, but throughout this this period now of eight or ten years where they have been so good, they've really made one heady move after another. It, it started way back when, when they traded Monte Ellis, who was kind of a guard taking away from Steph Curry, not two small guys that were going to play off of each other, but but almost not helping each other. And they brought in Andrew Bogut, the legitimate center that they really needed. And, and then they went out and they traded for Andre Iguodala, and they dumped some bad salaries and traded away some future draft picks to get Iguodala, who was really the final piece of that first championship team. And he was the MVP of the uh, of the NBA Finals that first championship year against Cleveland. He guarded LeBron James. A- and then when things went south with the relationship with Kevin Durant, instead of kind of licking their wounds, they strategically considered where Durant might go, figured that the Nets were a very, very likely option, knew that the Nets were not going to be able to re-sign Durant and D'Angelo Russell. They were going to have to move away from Russell. They formed the sign-and-trade to keep that huge monster uh, pay slot, the salary slot, they got Russell. They realized very quickly that Russell wasn't going to fit with their roster. They flipped him for Andrew Wiggins and a first-round draft pick that turned into a, a guy that, that may be you know, a, a huge future member of the organization in Jonathan Kaminga. And, and it's all of those moves that keep you where you are because while – People labeled Andrew Wiggins as a bust or a bad salary when he was with Minnesota. He was the number one overall pick. I don't know without Wiggins if the Warriors are in this spot. Something that people don't talk a lot about is for a long time, the Warriors were very good defensively, really in two spots and two spots only. Draymond Green's one of the best defenders in the NBA. He's a Hall of Famer. He's going to go to the Hall of Fame despite not being a good offensive player. That's very, very difficult to do. And then Andre Iguodala is or was a terrific defender. Now he's kind of like a player coach. He really does more off the court than on the court. But In this incarnation of the Warriors, you've got Draymond Green, who really plays center field. He doesn't (laughs) guard the best player on the other team. He he plays kind of the the backup. He plays the the running around, the moving part that you kind of have to account for, but he'll he'll 
stuff off of a not good shooter to double team, and, and he's just so heady, such high IQ. But it's Wiggins who's primarily guarding the, the team's best player, and then getting Gary Payton back is just enormous. I mean, a guy that was on the fringes, really wasn't even in the league, played in the, the G League, and the whole problem was his his offense. Well, his offense is just good enough to stick on the court right now to hit a corner three, but he is an absolutely tenacious perimeter defender, and that's what the Warriors have done for now a long time. They, they were horrible. They were a dumpster fire for most of my entire life. They were the Oakland A's without Billy Bean, meaning just terrible, and now they got good ownership with with Joe Lacob and Peter Goober, they've spent more money than anyone else. They've drafted well. They've made a couple of key, heady moves. But I think it's cool that these are two teams that, that have sort of built from within, and then they've added to it. I, I don't know that Brad Stevens gets the credit that he probably deserves with the Celtics. He stepped aside, and, and it, took, it took a big, bold move to say Kemba Walker doesn't fit here. We're going to bring back players that probably aren't as good as Kemba Walker, but Al Horford just fits the Celtics so well. Well, and I think Danny Ainge gets, um, gets a little credit there, too, because Absolutely. He, he put it together. Uh, a good piece of the roster. And then, uh, you know, hiring uh, Ime Udoka, I mean, I think people that maybe weren't NBA, NBA files probably were, like, scratching their head at that move. You know, it's a guy that coached with Greg Popovich for, I think, seven years, you know, you know, play, played internationally. So um, he's made all the right moves, too. I mean, he's just been – he's been terrific. When you look at, you know, kind of making the moves, uh, you know, he's he's been doing a good job of – really kind of dialing in the lineups and, um, you know, make, and making changes when, when they've needed it. Well, and what good coaches do is they know it's a long season and they adjust and they, they grow into the role and they're better at the end of the year than they are at the beginning of the year. Joe Missoula is on the Celtics staff, and, and I love Joe personally and professionally. Joe played at West Virginia. He was not a good offensive player. He was a tremendous passer, a great leader, and a good defender. And he took a Bob Huggins team to the Sweet 16 when the starting point guard got hurt, and he became the starter. And despite you know playing 38 minutes and not shooting, he still led a, a team deep into March Madness. Joe then was a, a volunteer assistant coach, a grad assistant coach at the D2 level and, and went and became a part of the, uh, the Celtics G League team in Portland, Maine, went back to the D2 level, became a head coach, and, and then was plucked by the Celtics for, by Stevens to, to be an assistant four or five years ago, was the only assistant, I believe, to be retained by the new coaching staff. And, and to me, those are the guys that are, are so blue-collar. I mean, he was he was sleeping on the couch of a, a coach at the D2 level making who knows how little money with a, a fiancé and a stepson. And, and now it seems to me he's a couple steps away from being the head coach of an NBA team. And, and I love seeing him talking to the head coach and working on adjustments. And, and you can tell 
the good organizations in the NBA really, really quickly. There are certain organizations that are professionally run, that consistently do the extra thing and make the right moves. There are five or six of them. And I was talking to Joe in the offseason a couple of years ago about opportunities and where he would like to go. And his long-term goal is to be an NBA head coach. And he said something like, you know, there are opportunities to move up on the bench from being the, you know, call it the fourth or fifth assistant coach coach to being on the the front of the bench be the second or third assistant coach and he goes but there are certain organizations you want to be a part of and they have the reputation and the Celtics and the Warriors are two of those that just that they do it right over and over and over again and it's nice to see them both in the finals from an X's and O's standpoint I'm interested to get your thoughts on the Celtics. It seems to me when I have watched them play, and again, I I didn't watch them a lot during the regular season. During the regular season, I concentrate on college basketball, and I watch some of the Warriors. Come the playoffs, college basketball is long gone. I need my basketball fix, and, and I really watch carefully. The Celtics play at a slower tempo than the Warriors do. But the Warriors play at one of the fastest tempos in the league. I'm interested from you. Do you think the Celtics play at a slower tempo because they're a more kind of plodding, slow Eastern Conference teams? Because the numbers indicate they're one of the best transition teams in the NBA. Yeah, that's an interesting That's an interesting question. Uh, I, don't, I don't think – they're not really – they don't really seem like a plotting team to me. Um, now, what they do like to do, um, you know, they, they like to shoot a lot of threes. I mean, that's one of the things that, that, that that's helped them a lot. But, you know, it's funny. I was watching the game against – I was at the uh, TD Garden for the second game against Brooklyn. And, um, you know, just, you know, our experience over the last couple of years, whether it was with Pat Kelsey or with uh, Mark Prosser at Winthrop, you know, a couple times the Celtics would get a rebound or uh, – you know, or they'd get a steal, and I'm instantly doing the windmill, like, "All right, let's go, move it, you know, make, make it, go faster, go faster." So maybe I would have liked to have seen them go a little bit faster, but they're clicking on all cylinders um, really when 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 Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are, are really working in tandem, and you know, either one of those guys has the opportunity to to take over a game. But it starts on the defensive end with this team, Dave. I mean, they, you know, they they get forced a lot of stops. They they make you take bad shots. And then when they're clicking offensively, and then you know you got kind of the fringe pieces—not um, fringe pieces, but you know Marcus Smart isn't the guy that um, he's had big, big games in the playoffs, and he's missed a game and they won without him. I mean, they're a little mystifying, is is it sometimes? <laughs> it's just at, at how good they can be, you know. And then a guy like you know Grant Williams steps up, Robert Williams, you know, you mentioned Derek White. I mean, they pretty much go to a seven, you know, seven, eight player rotation, um, but. You know, guys have stepped up when they've needed them. But I think as far as pace goes, I mean, I don't think they're going to – they're not like, um, you know, the old Boston Celtics or they're not like a you know a, a, a really slog-it-down team. That, but they do want to play with good good pace. And and I think when they're moving the ball you – know, one of the things we hear a lot about, you know, when the ball gets sticky, right? When the ball gets sticky with them, that's when they kind of run into trouble. Um, but when they're – when they're moving the ball around and then they're making their threes, then it kind of spreads the floor, and then they can go inside to an Al Horford or or Jalen Brown can drive it, and go for a dunk, or Jason Tatum. So, it's uh, I think with them, it's it's kind of like what we saw with some of the Winthrop teams the last couple of years. If they're passing, if they're connected, they're tough to beat. I think that 
the way the Celtics win the series is forcing turnovers and getting points in transition. Because if they don't do that, I, I don't think they can win. I, I think Derek White is shooting 28% from three in the playoffs. Marcus Smart is shooting 33%. They're going to get plenty of wide open opportunities. The Warriors are happy to live with those guys knocking down shots. My suggestion is, my guess is, those guys are not going to hit shots at a high enough percentage in the half-court game to win. Therefore, the only way those two guys can play is if they're outstanding defensively, and they are. But if those two in particular, and the team as a whole, doesn't force turnovers, doesn't get free points, I'm not sure how they outscore the Warriors. That being said, yeah, they got out rebound. I mean, they got out rebound and get second chance points. Yeah, no question. I think they're both pretty good rebounding yeah. teams. I, I I would be surprised if one team annihilates the other on yeah. the glass. But but I think it's the turnovers. The Warriors are very turnover prone. The Celtics are a very good half court defensive team. I think that's what turns the series. If the Celtics get turnovers, get out and get easy hoops, they've got a great chance to win. And, and if they are un able to force a zillion turnovers I, I don't think they can score enough points in the half court to, to outscore a, a really really deep warrior team um it, it's interesting when you look at the depth I think both teams are pretty healthy and because of that I think the Warriors are deeper. Anybody that would look at the Celtics would see two superstar players and a nice supporting cast. For the Warriors, when you talk about who are the most important players, everyone's going to talk about Steph and Clay. Sure. But Jordan Poole is now being brought up for the first time in this conversation. And what are we, 15 minutes yeah. into this? I, I mean, Jordan Poole has something like five games of 27 points or more in the playoffs. Now, he's bad on defense. There's no question the Celtics are going to attack, attack him, him every time he's on the floor. But that's why when you have Andrew Wiggins and Draymond Green and Gary Payton II, you have a little bit of protection. You'll see a lot of zone when Jordan Poole is on the floor. It'll be interesting to see how the Celtics attack that zone because, again, the Warriors aren't going to respect white and smart shooting threes. I think the Celtics have a problem in half-court offense in this series, but I think they absolutely can get out and score. But if it's a half-court game between Wiggins, who is a capable, not a great, but a capable three-point scorer who can really shoot the mid-range game and attack between Steph and Clay, and you know what those guys can do. And, and then the way Draymond Green essentially plays point guard, then you add in Otto Porter and Jordan Poole. I, I think the Warriors are deeper. I think they have more weapons, but the Celtics can force turnovers. They can get points in transition, and I think that's their method to victory. Well, and I think you you hit a, a good point there for the Celtics. I mean, that's why I said spacing is going to be so important for them when they get into a half court offense because they can get kind of bogged down a little bit when it when it uh, and especially against a good defensive team. So if they're not popping that ball and moving it around, trying to get spots, Golden State's going to force them into taking shots they don't want to take or or kind of tough shots late into a shot clock. That's something I'd be kind of uh, curious to look for too. Yeah, I'm really excited to watch the series. I think the Warriors have a pretty significant advantage in Game 1, having been off for a week yeah. and playing at home. Um, 
The Warriors are unbeaten at home in the playoffs this year. They've won a road playoff game in something like 26 or 27 consecutive series. I think game two is absolutely enormous. If the Celtics were to lose game one and go to 0-2, they'd be facing a team that would continue to have been unbeaten at home all postseason and who has been a killer on the road for, for the last decade. Warriors would have a pretty decent chance of winning game three or game four coming home up 3-1 and the series is probably over. The Celtics are going to need one, obviously, since you have to win four games in in San Francisco. I, I would say it would be very, very uh, 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 helpful to take one of those first two. No, I, I, I think that's a good synopsis. You know, obviously, from, from Boston's perspective, if you can get that road win, you know, earlier the better. But, you know, you, like you said, I mean, they played well, Sunday, they traveled Tuesday, got in, you know, you practiced yesterday, had media day yesterday, now play the game today. Now, you're, I think you make a good point, though, right? Because after the game today, you know, you know then you have uh, two days of rest before game two. So that'll be Sunday, 8 o'clock on ABC, Dave, for those that uh, haven't been paying attention. Maybe Mike Breen will be back. Oh, my gosh, yeah. A bunch of guys have COVID on that um ESPN crew reportedly, so it'd be uh, interesting to see um, how that. They didn't call us, though. Unfortunately, we didn't. We, you know, we could have had a great time in San Francisco. Maybe get some dim sum and go to the Golden State Bridge. Yeah. Maybe go to Alcatraz. Yeah, that that would have been nice. We could we have did, some good we didn't social get media. The call. No, we didn't get the call. Huh. But we are available. Bearded Carcast. Outlook.com. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it should it should be it should be a fun series. We're looking forward to it. Can I can I guess that you are predicting a Celtics win because through all the years of picking NFL games, you've never picked against the Patriots? Um, yeah, I'm sorry, Dave. I mean the, the 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 Patriots are kind of the modern day equivalent of like the uh, the Yankees of the NFL, and I think the Celtics um, kind of have that kind of Yankees of the even though you know they have, they're tied with 17 titles with with the Lakers but the Celtics in the kind of early formative years of the NBA were were just dominant and Red Auerbach teams in the 50s and 60s and you know they really um you know ha- have kind of had some tough years but I love this team I I think it's what I think the from a Boston perspective I think the teams that you don't necessarily expect to do things and then come out, I wouldn't say come out of the blue because you have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart. And this team was going to be a playoff team, but you didn't, you know, I, I I don't think a lot of people thought they were an NBA Finals team back in October, November. Um, so, I, and I think I just love the way this team plays. They're a bunch of likable guys. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm going, I'm going Boston in seven. Yeah. I mean, I think the Warriors are a dynasty. They, they've been to the finals now six times in eight years. They're only the fifth franchise to ever do that. And the other ones had either Magic Johnson, Jerry West, Michael Jordan, or Larry Bird on them. So uh, the Warriors have the, the home court advantage. I think the Warriors are deeper. I am concerned about the turnovers. I very much respect the Celtics. I, I don't think, I could be wrong, I, I don't think the Celtics are winning a championship in San Francisco, meaning I think they need to win in six to to hoist the trophy. But and I think that, but I will say this, though. I mean, they are capable of winning on the road and winning it no, on the road. We've seen it two series yeah. in a row. There's, yeah. there's, there's no question 
about that. But, but what, I just think this – I mean, I would like to see it in six, but I think this is going to be too evenly matched a series for it to be a six-game series. Yeah, I mean, my gut feeling is that the Warriors are better. I just think they have more better players. But I, I, I think the Celtics are, are – Smart. I think they're big. I love the Celtics' yep, size. I think that could bother the Warriors. But but I think the Warriors are better, and I think the Warriors will win at home, whether it's in Game Five or Game Seven. But we'll we'll see. That's why that's why, why they, they play. play the games. If you have a prediction, email it to us. Beardedcarcast at outlook.com. Beardedcarcast at outlook.com. Uh, we would certainly appreciate if you do all the things that every podcast says. You like and review yeah, and, and all of those yeah. sort of things. Subscribe. And um, you're Venmo, listening. You can Venmo us cash if you want to pay. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Support the uh, Listener bearded. supported bearded carcass. Exactly. Uh, switching topics. Yes. I am going to assume that you have not been watching a lot of the French Open because what? I don't. I, yeah, I, I don't think most people have been watching yeah, no, a lot of the I French have not Open. Been watching the French Open. It's the only tennis major that is not on ESPN. So on DirecTV, you got to turn on 217. That's the uh, the tennis network. And, you know, I, I, I think tennis has been a niche sport for a long, long time, and particularly in America since we haven't had great U.S.-based players in a long time. As we speak, there is an 18-year-old American, Coco Goff, playing in a semifinal, trying to uh, reach the final against Iga Swiatek, who hasn't lost in like three and a half months, and maybe for the first time in a long, long time, could be someone that women's tennis can lean in on and depend on, which they've drastically needed since Serena Williams stopped playing at that level. But the story, and the only story, is Rafael Nadal. Nadal and Djokovic were put in the same quarter of the bracket. We could get into why that's a horrible idea, but I don't think it's worth discussing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. and they played on, I guess that was Tuesday afternoon in the U.S. and into the evening East Coast time. And it was just a incredible match. Nadal actually was very much challenged in the previous round and got up off the deck and then faces Djokovic, who is clearly the best player in the world. Nadal and Djokovic are two of the five best players of all time in the sport. And Nadal at Roland Garros is just special. And even though he's not at 100%, he was was spectacular. It is incredible to me that at his age, he continues to play the way he does. Nadal is 35 years old. He'll turn 36 tomorrow. He would be the second oldest major champion in tennis history and he he's he's an old 36 because mm-hmm. he gets injured a lot and the way he plays is very very hard on the body and to me he summons those questions of I mean the most recent example would be Tom Brady it's how can guys continue to do it at this 
advanced age. And at some point, Nadal and Djokovic and Federer are all going to be gone, and tennis is going to go back to what it was before those guys, 15 or 20 years ago, where, you know, if you like it as a niche, it's a fun sport. And again, I understand that that not a lot of people in the U.S. are watching, and that's perfectly fine. The matches are played at funny times. Certainly, it's hard to relate to a clay court. But Greatness is greatness, and to not appreciate what Nadal has been able to do is to just ignore it because it's somewhat foreign and it's not a quote-unquote big deal in the U.S. Well, and it's not a big deal in the U.S. because tennis, uh, from a participation and from an excellence standpoint on the men's side, uh, has I mean, there has not been a, a legitimate elite male American tennis player in, what, 10, 10 years, 5, 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even I know. I mean, a guy you, that you would say would have like a like a um, like a McEnroe or. A, I mean, I think you got to go back to Sampras, and that's a heck of a lot longer than five years yeah. ago. I mean, that's not to say that there haven't been good American players, but well, no Andy one Roddick of that was level. Probably the last, and he wasn't in the same category as Sampras. I don't think wasn't anywhere remotely yeah. close, and hasn't been around in a long yeah. time. I mean, Andy Roddick must have retired ten years ago, something like that. Yeah. yeah. But I and I remember when I was doing the show on seven thirty, um, we were talking. I, I don't know if this was it was probably around the time of the U.S. Open, but um, it, it's discouraging to me because I remember growing up. You know, you had Connors and McEnroe and you know Sampras and um, um, it's I don't know. It's uh, our attention athletically has you know obviously gravitated, and I'm talking about the elite athletes. You know, I mean they've they've all gravitated to the, the kind of the four major sports. You could throw in soccer too i think in that level but it's interesting you say that do you think anyone's watching the hockey playoffs outside of the markets in which the games are being played um probably not i mean i i i'll admit um i, I kind of have taken a back seat since the bruins lost to the hurricanes i mean i, I fully intended to watch the stanley cup playoffs in the manner that i always do yeah. and the nba because of the schedule started a couple weeks. The playoffs started a couple of weeks earlier. And I got so into the NBA playoffs, right. the Stanley Cup playoffs just became kind of my, my secondary interest. And I don't really have a dog in the fight. I'm a Sharks fan. They haven't been very good the last few years. They need to completely start over. They have a bunch of bad salaries and, and so forth and so on. But I like the Stanley Cup class. I think it's a, a good product. And I have watched here and there, but in no way has it been appointment viewing. Like, I really feel like, and, and maybe this is just my personal view on things, I, I feel like the NFL is number one by a long, long sure. stretch. I feel like the NBA is number two by a big margin. And, and after that, I, I think it's baseball only because – after the Stanley Cup Finals wrap-up yeah, come going on. July, there's there's yeah. not a lot going on before training uh, NFL training camp opens up. And, and then soccer and, and hockey sort of jointly. But I think the distance between the NFL and the NBA and the NBA and everyone else, I think it's enormous. And, and I'm not counting college sports because I think college football might be the second most popular sport in the country. Yeah, that's probably fair. That's probably fair, and I think golf is um, it ebbs and flows. I mean, obviously, when when Tiger's you know in contention, it it 
Well, those days are over. Yeah, but still, I mean, he still. If he were, I mean, I think, yeah, no doubt his game's. I mean, now we've said we've said that five times in the last ten years. But no, but it's still, it's he's still relevant when he's in contention. It's just he's not in contention as much. Anymore, I mean, he's relevant all. anytime he's yeah. on the course. Yeah. I mean, eyes are going to to move to him, and the ratings are going to go way up. It just appears in the very limited amount we've seen him recently. No, he's yeah, he's no pun intended. He's on the back nine. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And, and while golf is is God, there are so many good players. I mean, every year there are five new Scotty Schefflers. Yeah. Or, or right. you know, wh- whoever, John Rahm, they're all of these good young players. Colin Morikawa. I mean, this sport is incredibly deep. But Tiger was the guy that brought everybody he brought in. Yep. And he's also bringing some people out. I mean, he, he, he is the one and only guy. Now, to a lesser extent, Phil Mickelson is a... Um, lightning rod and is a guy that attracts a lot of attention and i don't know if you followed this at all because i think you could run the gauntlet from this being a non-story that no one cares about to being something you're really really curious about but phil was to said to to have some relationship with the saudi golf tour which is going to have their first ever event not this weekend but next Next weekend weekend. have you followed this at all yeah just in the in the it, well, it's an interesting thing, right? Because there's the backdrop of um, the threat by uh, tournaments, uh, and not the majors, but the 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 um, the, the rest of the PGA Tour of uh, there's talk about banning guys that play in this uh, Saudi League tournament, right? And if, and I think um, I read yesterday Dustin Johnson lost RBC, the the Royal Bank of Canada. Um, they 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 have a couple of events on tour. I think Hilton Head, I think, is theirs. Yeah, maybe that's RBS. But anyway, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Now the uh, the PGA Tour, it seems like, is probably taking a wait and see approach. Uh, but some of these tournaments might say, yeah, hey, you know what? We don't want these. If these guys are going to skip my tournament to play somewhere else, you know, who needs them? You know, well, it, it's just it's fascinating. So apparently, the Saudi Golf Tour, which is financed by the Saudis, which have a a kind of shoddy record on human rights <laughs> um, putting it they, so they they they're largely backing this event right it's a three round not norman a, is kind of the face of it well they wanted they wanted jack nicholas to be the face of it and they offered him a huge amount yeah. of money and he passed and then they moved on to greg norman who like you said is the face of it and they need one or two or three really high-profile players to, to kind of legitimize it. And it was going to be Phil, and Phil has found himself in a lot of hot water Well, he made recently. some comments, yeah. I mean, he kind of glossed over some of the, the non-golf issues with the, the Saudi Golf League, and particularly um, about the, the, the leadership, you know, the Saudi government and, and the people that are backing the league. Um, so yeah, that, that he, he's kind of been kind of ostracized. 
ostracized from everyone. Yeah. I mean, he he's not playing PGA Tour events. He did not play in the PGA Championship where he was the, the defending champion. He didn't play in the Masters. And now he, he's not on the list. Now, he could he could still be added, but he's not on the list for the first Saudi Tour event. Now, you also have to understand, everyone gets paid. In the, in the PGA Tour, you only get paid if you make the cut. Yeah. In the Saudi Golf Tour, if you participate, you draw a paycheck, and if you do well, you, you earn a very large paycheck. But without Phil... You've got a lot of the kind of like aging stars, the, the Sergio Garcias of the world. But Dustin Johnson was paid $125 million to play in the Saudi Golf Tour. So as you mentioned, he's losing some some sponsorship. But I, I, I'd say the 125 is yeah. going to make up for that and some. And it's fascinating. Could the PGA Tour now say... Dustin Johnson, you can't play in the uh, the PGA Championship. You can't play in the United States Open. You can't play in the the Masters. Or, or are they going to be like, well, he's one of the ten best players in the world. He's one of ours. He's won a couple of majors. We're, we're going to accommodate him. Does the PGA Tour look at this like this is such an enormous threat that we draw the line right here? And because. If they don't do that, why shouldn't Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy and, and all the other stars also occasionally, once a month, go and play in the Saudi Golf Tour for a bunch of money? Well, what is going to determine the success or failure of this new venture, right? It's going to be eyeballs. It's going to be you know people watching it, people spending money on it. If I'm wondering if the PGA Tour isn't taking a little bit of a wait-and-see attitude here, because if this thing doesn't take off, they don't need to do anything. Yeah, but what if the first event, I, again, next week... I think it would have been a bigger issue, Dave, if you had like 10 or 15 guys, I mean, like, uh, you know, the top, maybe 15 of the top 20, 25 golfers on tour playing in this thing. I think if it was... Because Dustin Johnson's the highest profile guy, right? And I mean, I think I'm obviously Sergio Garcia's. I think in it too. Um, so I mean, there are some guys with some big names, Lee Westwood, but those are mostly European guys that play over in Europe anyway. Like they, they'll split time between the PGA Tour and playing overseas. So I don't know that that it's it, to me. It's more of you know if it's um, the John Rahm's and the Bryson DeChambeau's and the Brooks Kopkas. If those guys are playing, then I think. The PGA Tour has a little bit of an issue, but until it's like a um, a flood of guys leaving to play in in some of the events, I don't know if they necessarily have to do anything. I think I think right now they're they're probably still trying to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting take on it because if you open the door, if you don't do anything. There are going to be weeks. Now, it's certainly not going to be the week of the major championships in the U.S., but there are going to be weeks where a bunch of your players say, there's bigger money to be made elsewhere. I'm going to go try for the bigger money. And if you open that door and it is okay for them to do that, I think you're allowing the Saudi Golf League, if not to be another big deal, to be a... 
a a something, a competitor to some degree. Whereas if you throw down the gauntlet now and say, pick one or the other, it, it seems like most people are going to pick the PGA Tour, which, you know, has all of the majors, has all of the, the infrastructure and has had all the success. I, I'm interested next week, and, and I haven't looked this up, maybe you have, is the Saudi golf tour going to be on American television? Because I would be more interested in seeing what the Saudi golf tour's first event looks like, where there is a huge amount of money on the line, and you do have very good golfers, maybe not as good a field as the PGA Tour has, but, but at least as a novelty, I, I'd be more interested in watching that than I would, you know, the, the 22nd biggest PGA Tour event. Well, it's going to be um, apparently live streamed on YouTube. Interesting. Initially. So they don't have a TV contract. Well, and again, like, so this is one of those things where I think, you know, when you're drawing something up and on paper and you have well-heeled uh, money, you know, how long is the interest going to be in from the fan base, right? So are, are people is, – is this, is, this go- is this golf's version of, like, the XFL? I, even though it's higher talent. Like, in other words, are there going to be eyeballs the first week, maybe the first two events, and then it drops off? You know, and it, 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 when you're throwing big money, you know, week after week, eventually you're going to want to stop throwing that money around, right? So if this thing doesn't take off quickly, this is why I think, the, to me, this is why I think the PJ Tour is probably behind the scenes has done a lot of lobbying with the players. Um, and I think this has been com- somewhat common knowledge, I think, right, that they've kind of quietly let it be known that they really don't want a max exodus for this. So I think that's why you've seen a couple of players dribbling out. I, I'm wondering if the PJ isn't just hoping that this thing just runs its course and then they, they don't have to deal with it. In other words, don't take the big PR hit of looking like the bully, saying, oh, you guys can't do this, you can't make money on your own, you got to stick with the tour, and let this thing just falter. Now, if it takes off, then it's a different story. But um, like you said, and again, I know they're very well healed, so this probably isn't you know um, a, a week-to-week thing, but you know, NBC doesn't appear to be getting involved. Um, you know, The Golf Channel, I think, is going to cover it, but they're not... They're not when I say covered, I mean they'll probably have reporters out there, but they're not it's not wire to wire coverage. So at least Yeah, I mean I'll be interested and because it's Saudi backed, I don't think it's like the XFL where if they lose a bunch of money, it's a problem. I, I you know, I, I, I think Well, I think it becomes a problem though to like how much money are they gonna lose, right? And and for how long are you want you know, yep. yeah, you want like you're right. It's it's much more better funded than any of the um, spring football leagues have been. That's for sure. But but still, I mean, you know, look at you know locally here with you know what's going on with um, the Carolina Panthers and the practice facility in in Rock Hill. I mean, when you're throwing a lot of money out, eventually there's a point, there's a number where you've you've had enough of throwing money out the window if you're not seeing something coming back in. And yeah, no question, no question. So, it's uh. It'll be fun to watch. It'll be fun to kind of uh, pay attention to. And uh, I look forward to potting you against as uh, I celebrate the Warriors' fourth (laughs) championship. (laughs) Well, um, let's not get to the point where um, I'm slapping you in in November over a a fantasy football. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Man, that is one of the strangest, most bizarre, kind of worst stories in a long time. But that that tells you – 
what's the interesting state of where baseball is right now. That's the biggest story in baseball yep. since opening day. Yep. And it has nothing to do with that. I mean, it, it does because it's two baseball players, and then Mike Trout gets thrown in because he was apparently, you know, air quotes, a lousy commissioner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Classic. I mean, it's almost like I mean, it's almost become like wrestling, right? I mean, it's like the the, the storyline is something that has nothing to do with your sport, and that's what all people were talking about the last week. I just think baseball's a niche, and that that's not a bad thing. I think. Oh, did you see? This is funny. Sorry to cut you off because it uh, the the SNY put up a clip last night. Did you see this? With Gary Cohen with the Mets. I don't think so. And um, they were talking about uh, somebody on the broadcast, and and. You know, you get two guys on the broadcast that are over 50, and Gary Cohen says, hey, can we get some people in baseball that are talking about baseball that are under 50? I'm like, dude, your audience is 57. Like, your your yep. average audience. Uh, he's right. Yep. He's right, but it's like that's – I mean, that's where we're at. And then, yep. of course, being someone that's, you know, north of that number, uh, not 57. I'm younger than that, but – and I look. You like can be very successful catering to – in a fluent older niche, the golf has has done it for years. It, 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 there's nothing wrong with being a niche. I just think that the NBA, the NFL, have have really distanced themselves. Well, right, because well, and it, you know, times have changed too, right? I mean, I think, you know, oh, I I know what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I think I get my clipboard here. You're gonna love this. So you know, we were talking about um, time of games, right? And uh, so I went back and just kind of looked at, and again, it, it's very anecdotal, uh, and it's not really scientific. And I don't even know what it says, but I do find it to be interesting. And that is, when you go back and look at um, the time, the times of games, right? So this year, I looked at <clears throat> the other day the, the uh, in AAA since they instituted the uh, the um, the new pitch clock. They did uh, – hold on a second here. Uh, just real quickly. So time of game in AAA, 243, down from last year where it was 304. Spectacular. The Knights went from 305 last year to 235 this That's year. That's incredible. Last year, Major League Baseball, average time of game was 310. This year it's 305. If you go back to – and I just said – just to go back 10, 10 years. If you go back to – 2012, time of game, AAA, 255. Okay, so they went from 255 to 304 last year. So but not, almost 10 minutes. Um, Major League Baseball, 305 this year, 2 hours and 55 minutes uh, in 2012. So I think people want that time back, and I think this pitch clock could do that. But that just, just to kind of illustrate your point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it can happen. It can get better. They've lost a lot of people. How many of those are going to get back on? I don't know. But guess what? Once the NBA Finals and the Stanley Cup Finals end, we'll have lots of time to talk about it or not. Or not. All right, well, that'll do it here for the Bearded Carcast, a special NBA Finals edition. We'll be back probably in two weeks uh, when Dave's going to be wearing a green Celtics shirt <laughs> celebrating the Celtics victory. It's going to be fun. I just hope we're talking about a, a great Celtics uh or, or Warriors. I, I hope it's a fun series, and I hope yeah. everybody can enjoy it, and I'm sure the ratings will be great. And uh, if you have a thought, beardedcarcast at outlook.com. You can always uh, send us something on Twitter, at beardedcarcast is how you follow along on Twitter. And um, I think that's it, unless you have a final thought, Dave, you want to get out. That's it. Good luck. Enjoy the finals. We'll talk soon.